You are back in New Zealand now. Is that uh, that correct? I am. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, quick question: When someone tells you that you sound like an Australian, what do you say to them? Depends where they're from and where I am. <laughs> now, there's a very clear explanation behind this. I like to say oh, yeah. that New Zealanders and Australians are to ninety-five percent cultural similarity, and. Mm-hmm. I eat Marmite and you eat Vegemite, perhaps, or your colleagues or people around you eat Vegemite. And they're wrong, but that's we're not going to get into that right now. But that's the thing, is when we are here in this part of the world, we will fight to the death over the last 5%. But if it's New Zealanders and Australians and we're in the US or the UK or whatever, it's like, ah, oh, we're close enough, who cares? Yeah, yeah. Well, I generally tell people that uh, New Zealand is, is like the Canada to the US. Mm-hmm. You know, 95% similar, uh, a little more polite. <laughs> and I think the difference is, is that uh, whether or not you get insulted as to people who make the majority guess, you hear someone speaking with a North American accent, you might assume that they're American because they're more of them. And I think people do the same mm-hmm. for the Australian accent as well. But. but but if you ask a Canadian if they're American, they'll get offended. And so you always... I, I've they they won't get offended. That- they'll apologize. They're Canadian. <laughs> They, they are Canadian. Like, I wish but I was American. I'm I, sorry. I didn't mean to. I've noticed, I've noticed that people always ask me if I'm Canadian. They don't ever ask me if I'm American. Are you polite? And it's just they more polite that, than like, others? Are. Yeah, well, well, Canadians, Americans don't get offended because they're just like, oh, whatever. But yeah. Canadians, they're like, you know, oh, you know, no, those are the, the heathens to the south. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, enough about, about how great uh, New Zealand is. Um, why don't you should uh, come visit sometime. Introdu- I've been. I've been uh, probably seven or eight times. I didn't see um, you. you know, it's a surprise normally. We keep pretty close <laughs> well, tabs on who comes in. They, they, yeah, immigration is nice. Um, they actually have a, a global entry line in Wellington. Mm-hmm. It's the craziest For American thing. global like, entry. American global entry. And the, uh, it's like the diplomatic line, and it says, you know, U.S. global entry. And it's, I'm always like the only person who's ever used that line. And, you know, you get off the, the flight from Sydney and there's the big, you know, rush of Australians going one place and a handful of other people. And then I go to the diplomatic line and they're always just like, what are you doing? Who is this guy? <laughs> last, yeah. last time we um, went to the U.S. was the first time since the COVID times and global entry had actually expired. We'd had global entry and it was a reasonably new thing for non-Americans to be able to get it. They launched to the U.K., about five years ago, I think, which is about how long it lasts. So that was fantastic when we had that. We'd turn up to yeah. San Francisco Airport and they'd say, welcome home, like assuming we must have been American or something. But uh, anyway, that ran out and like, oh, my God, we're going to have to get in the line. What actually happened was that for a period, all of passport control was down for the period that we landed, maybe an hour before or something, but apparently across oh, the wow. country. So everyone was queuing, no machines. Everyone was being seen by a person. So perhaps it was one of those... Uh, FAA things that uh, we see on your news so often these days. Maybe it was like a, uh, a red team thing where they, you know, see how, see how they react to being having their stuff taken down. Doesn't matter if you don't have global entry. It's like, well, you've still got to go see a person and you've got to be in the end of this very long line. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just did. Uh, so I've, my, my three kids, we signed up for global entry before our last trip to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And two of them had their approval for interviews on arrival, but not all three of them. So One of your so child committed a heinous like, crime, and you have to figure out which one it is by asking simple questions. Well, no, no, no. The other two was like, I took them. They, they have their global entry now, but the third one is like, you know, the clock's running. You know, you have two, out, two years to, to get that interview, but you can only do it in the U.S. or, or like United Arab Emirates or um, 
it was just something totally random. You know, you can't get at the consulate. I was like, oh, we'll just go down the consulate. You know, can't do that. Um, you can do interview on arrival or you can do it, you know, within the U.S. And those appointments are usually like six months. Exactly. Because we, we looked at this when we were talking about it when we got there. My son doesn't have global entry. He was born in between saying, well, are we going to turn up often enough for this to be a thing? And what would it look like to sign him up? And they basically you look online and it says, well, sometime between now and 2020, whatever. It's like, well, I probably won't bother with that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So was was your son born? Well, wait, wait, wait. First off. I don't think I've introduced you. <laughs> so, That's the so mystery of, of the cold open. In, yes, yes. The the beauty of the cold open with uh, uh, in the interview format is at some point, I should say, uh, I'm talking to Craig Box. Uh, Craig, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Craig Box. <laughs> well done. I was in a meeting with a colleague the other day, and he says, this guy's just joined the company. He says, can you say the thing? Like, oh, it, sure. I'm, I, I'm, oh. I'm a D-list celebrity in, in a very, very weird rooms. Say hi and welcome to this meeting. I'm Craig Box. <laughs> if you're D list, that makes me like D minus because I I've been in like a, a handful of of you know back I worked some sales calls and there was we were in this one meeting where this guy was just you know smiling like the whole time and then afterwards he's like. I thought you were such Canadian. A big fan of the podcast, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, I'm such a big fan of the podcast. And my coworkers had no idea I had a podcast. Uh-huh. You know, and so they were just like, Matt's famous, <laughs> and it's it's hard to live that down once uh, because you know they were Australian and they always gave me a hard time from the next three years. You're but, the best uh, looking girl on the street, depending on the street. Yeah, yeah, the most popular girl in the whole wide room. Um, but uh, anyway, D-list celebrities, um, your your claim to fame uh, is, you know, besides being uh, New Zealand's number one podcaster, is, uh, you know, you, you now have your own newsletter, uh, you know, post post having your own podcast. Is, is there another podcast in the future? It's a complicated question. And uh, the piece of advice that I'd give anyone who is following your show for should I start a podcast tips is uh, be careful who owns your thing and whether or not you have the right to continue your thing after you change your employer. Ah, uh, you sound like uh, like Conan O'Brien. <laughs> I'm legally <laughs> legally prohibited from being interesting on the internet for a year. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so, so whether or not I've started another podcast is one thing that um, the Brandon and Brian didn't talk about on their show is the product market fit and building an audience and whether or not you're willing to do that graft the whole 10,000 hours thing and it's all very well coming in with a little bit of celebrity and a little bit of experience and ability to do a thing without too much effort but if you're coming at something brand new and you're slogging away at it and you're getting very little return on that and you're seeing five or ten people download your thing a week building that up over time you have to be prepared for that you have to be willing to do that graft and because I didn't have access to my audience effectively, the people who, who liked mm-hmm. the show that I used to do, I've posted out under my own social presences and so on, my Mastodon account, they, they can come and subscribe to my newsletter, but I don't have a way of communicating that to the people who are subscribed to the show that I used to host. And that was by part a, a decision. As part of the old show, we would always build up the presence for the people who were paying for it. It was people were encouraged to go and follow the podcast Twitter account rather than my personal Twitter account. That's the thing that I, I believe in when someone's sponsoring a thing. It, it's a right that they have. But that does oh, make sure. it hard to to take that audience with you when you go to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I think I've had several, you know, quote unquote, corporate podcasts that have uh, come and went. Mm-hmm. But, uh, um, you know, the, the maybe you can, you know, just 
latch on to an existing property as you know the permanent guest host and uh <laughs> are you looking for an accident uh, uh yeah yeah well you know um when I, eventually you'll just you know, get your own your own mic and uh uh, start getting sweet royalty checks because that's what that's what podcasting is all about, right? <laughs> yeah, I have I've looked around, and that's the thing is that there are a lot of people who would were interested in the things that Adam and I used to do on our show. And just a, a bit of background for anyone out there who hasn't listened: Adam Glick and I started the Kubernetes podcast from Google in 2018. We launched it with a keynote on stage at KubeCon EU, which obviously meant that we had a lot of people know about the thing very early on. So that got us right over that hump of building up an audience. We started oh, off yeah. with 4,000 subscribers in the first week, built that number up very big. COVID happened, it fell down again, built it sort of back up to where it used to be. But that audience obviously belongs to that show, which is Google's thing. And so the question now is, well, how can I take the group of people, the sort of intersection of the people who like the things I used to talk about, like that format, like hearing about this thing, and find that audience again. So I've had a look around yeah. other podcasts that people listen to and so on, whether or not I could join something that already exists or whether I have to go and build something from scratch and then effectively compete with my own audience again. Well, or, you know, you have a, a new take uh, that's, you know, slightly different. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things I, I don't know if we pride ourselves on this as software to find talk, but we... Uh, we don't really have a, a lot of professionality around, you know, <laughs> oh, you know, we're going to interview these people and always have, you know, the straight uh, Q&A and, and uh, you know, I mean, because cause that was one of the things I enjoyed, um, you know, about the, the Kubernetes podcast is you brought in relevant guests and, you know, you hit them with the right questions. And it was usually as someone new to the Kubernetes ecosystem, I learned a lot just by listening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I tend to learn through osmosis, like I just kind of surround myself in it where I hear the words enough and eventually, you know, gets in my thick skull. And, um, but other podcasts, like, I don't think people come to software to find talk to learn. <laughs> I listen to a good number of what I will loosely call two to three white guys talking tech podcasts. And they are mostly in the Apple space and device space and so on. And I like that format, but it's another thing. It's whether or not you can build an audience to start that kind of thing today. I, I see similarities in that format to, to what you guys do, and I enjoy it. I've had a, a podcast-shaped hole in my life for a few months, so I've been uh, branching out a little bit and catching up on things I didn't previously have time for. But it is... It's a different thing. I, I've been petitioning Adam to start a, a parenting podcast or a movies podcast or something, but it's a it's a time commitment, and it's it is it'll take it you a while to to build that back up. And so, in the meantime, the newsletter is just a way of sort of keeping that muscle of keeping in touch with the community. A lot of people. Mm -hmm. They said that they learned what was going on in the industry through our show every week. And part of that was the rhythm and the routine that it happened every week religiously until Adam left and I got sloppy. But then. It's also good to, to have that so that I know and I can take that back to, to Alma where I work now and, and inform them of what's going on and I can, can keep the whole industry up to date and, and sort of keep my name out there and so make sure that uh, when I'm in those rooms again that people still say, hey, I, I, I see what you do, not just I remember that thing you used to do. Right, right. Well, I mean, and, and podcasting, you know, isn't, it wasn't your day job. So, uh, you know, you were, you were the uh, one of the Google advocacy lead for, for Kubernetes. Um, I guess how many, how many people have like advocacy roles around Kubernetes at, at Google? Is that like uh, a lot of people or? handfuls? So the developer advocacy team for Google cloud, I think it was around 80 names listed on the website. And then there were probably yeah. that many again. And what we call developer programs engineering who are effectively writing samples and 
maybe two times that many tech writers overall. So smaller number than perhaps you might think for for some people, some teams. Uh, yeah. DevRel is one of those things that uh, it means something different at every company. Uh, I have uh, oh, absolutely. very interesting opinions on it. Uh, at, at Google, obviously, you could basically just go and do whatever you wanted. So you say to some degree podcasting. Podcasting was part of my day job. It was oh, yeah. paid to do it for, for work, obviously. But then it is pick the thing you want to work on and, and a lot of freedom and a, a long, long rope. If people decide they want to go and, and work on a completely different product, the company would normally allow that. So that's one of the good things about working inside such a, a big company. But all throughout, effectively, I, I joined the company just as Kubernetes was being discussed. I remember going to my, my first off-site international meeting in Seattle and talking to some guys there who were working on some secret Project 7 thing. Thinking, yeah, I should, should go and learn a little bit about this. As uh, obviously Docker and so on was out there at the time, and I went back talking to customers in, in Europe, where I was based for, for most of the time. I was was working there, and then started telling them, right, you need to go look at Docker, and I can't tell you why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, did you ever did you ever run into customers who are like, I'm going to tell you about Cooper. Actually, no, I'm going to tell you about, you know, just, just straight cloud or, you oh, know, yeah. hey, may, may, you know, did, did you ever like run into customers who are like, you, you're not tall enough to ride this ride? We were given the, the leeway, and I, I believe this is sort of roughly true across the industry as well, but developer advocates are somewhat trusted to be able to say, hey, actually, our thing's not the right fit for you. We should be the people right. who have the honest approach. We can come and say, hey, you're running stuff on premises. You've got a mainframe. You've got whatever technology here. You've got a Beowulf cluster of Commodore 64s. Just leave them as they are. You don't need to worry about that. And we might not be the right fit for you. If at the time when Google hadn't developed whatever the thing was, if, if people were saying, hey, I have an Amazon-shaped workload and it's running comfortably on Amazon, I might say to them, all right, keep it there. There's no reason to move. Like we, You might save 5 or 10% on low-level cost storage and computer so on if you move to Google, but it's a lot of effort and we don't have anything yeah. differentiated yet. Call us back in the year when we'll have built something that you're interested in. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, so what led you to Armo? I mean, you did uh, eight years at Google? Is that right? Yeah, eight, eight and a half. The, the last year-ish, I guess, uh, was mid-pandemic, came back to New Zealand. Yeah. It seemed uh, a, a, a way to... Uh, to reunite some family who hadn't all had a chance to, to meet each other. And again, Google's a great company that you can say to them at the time, just as the whole everyone can work remote for everything was starting to come about, hey, I want to pick up and, and move back to New Zealand. And they're like, sure, we'll do that. And we did that. It has more synergy here than working based in the UK in terms of time zones some days a week. Uh, we're, mm -hmm. we're chatting here on a Monday. I'm like, why are you talking to me on your day off, Matt? Well, yeah, that's the nice thing about New Zealand and Australia is uh, we, we, we get every U.S. Friday off. Yeah. So the, the, the turnaround there was effectively, all right, well, I, I've done this thing for a long time. There is a, a set of things that you can do and be influential with if you're in the right places and you're able to see the right people. And the whole remote mm -hmm. thing made it a bit easier to equalize everyone was remote for a period but still the closer you are to the the core the people in california and seattle and so on the, the better off yeah. you will be in terms of, of career and decisions and so on and i'd always kind of had the whole i'm the rest of the world guy i was doing a lot of stuff that was valuable to those teams because i was dealing with people in europe or traveling people in apac all that kind of thing and 
I have enjoyed working for a big company very, very much, but it is also very hard to see the thing that you do because it is, by definition, so small compared to what everything else does, how much of an impact that has. And Absolutely. obviously, it's a tough time in the industry with, with layoffs at the moment. I, I don't think developer relations teams as a whole are being targeted or being worried about so much, but it's very easy to say, well, like there's the people who make things and the people who go and talk about them. And mm-hmm. you could get rid of the people who go and talk about things if you needed to. Again, nothing to do with this. Obviously, this happened all mostly before all the layoffs came about industry-wide. But I'd always wanted to be a little bit closer to the actual making of a thing. And so right. that would necessitate, obviously, going back and taking the skills that I have and finding a team that I could be closer to the center of, where I could say, hey, bringing a background in open source and podcasting and writing and promoting and so on and building these communities and that where can that be core to something rather than sort of an ancillary thing and that leads down the road of thinking about startups and i had someone contact me and uh, armo was someone that i'd seen in the coverage of the industry that i do regularly and, and thought good things about so i was willing to entertain the conversation and it very rapidly sort of became something that we could make real and we did good story good story so how big how big is armo today like uh, in the under 100 category, I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of placing it. Uh, sounds similar to where I'm at at KubeCause. We're uh, more than doubled last year, but uh, still under 100. Yeah. So we've, we've taken a Series A funding round. It was uh, yep. so just before it became hard to raise money. So another factor there is, is good timing as well, is that uh, we have a, a good line of sight to the things that we're going to do and an ability to execute that. And... Mm-hmm. At this time in the industry as well, companies like ours, we need people to grow. We've taken money from people. We need to oh, spend yeah. that money. We need to hire people. And with yeah. everything else contracting, it's a really weird time to be in a startup where we're, we're desperate to find good people and to grow because you will succeed or fail on the first couple of years and whether or not you can grow and get to your Series B or whatever it is you need to do. So it's, it's very interesting watching how things are in big companies versus small companies, just with how things have turned out. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and so that brings us to uh, the the news that Coopscape, your is is that Armo's product? You know, is that the name of their main product, or do they have like a you know Coopscape Enterprise, or do, do they call it something different? Uh, that's another one of those depends when you ask kind of questions. <laughs> okay. Well, my experience at Coopcost is we uh, took our open source Coopcost and gave it to the CNCF and changed the name to mm-hmm. OpenCost. Um, and so you guys have taken Coopscape uh, and, and handed it over to the CNCF as a new sandbox project, uh, just like like we have. And uh, you know uh, you're, you're going down that path. Um, tell tell uh, folks who who don't know, you know, give us the, the quick pitch on Coopscape. Who what is it and who's it for? Yeah, Amo's intention was to build the first open source end-to-end security platform for Kubernetes users and users there not necessarily security professionals, but the DevOps people, the people who are doing stuff based on top of Kubernetes. There are a lot of security vendors out there who have open sourced a whole bunch of good tools. The average person who's doing Kubernetes security, who deploys stuff and, and wants to know what's going on with that, they tend to take a few of those tools and throw them together or some of the bigger, more professional enterprise quote-unquote companies they'll go to some vendor that does cloud security and sort of has a kubernetes add-on but there's no one in that sort of central sweet space of building a thing which is solely focused on kubernetes which is a bet that we 
I think is pretty clear to say there's, there's going to be a lot of Kubernetes for the next 10 years, if not longer. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And so they are the, the focus is right. Well, end to end is like, what are the things that the, the people who are deploying things care about? They care about being able to check in their IDE, make sure that the things that they're writing, especially the manifest files and, and so on are secure, run against best practices that either the company or the industry have defined and then same thing as you go through CI is to evaluate, should we be able to deploy things if we've downloaded some Helm chart from somewhere? Like, are we checking that that's running against these best practices? A lot of people are starting to think, oh, software supply chain, blah, 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 blah. And I think that's a bit of a run before you walk situation. It's definitely something that we're... I, I, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I used to bang the drum about you know, understanding, you know, from source, everything that's in your stack, mm -hmm. uh, you know, previous company, we had a, a full stack, you know, build from source, build all your dependencies from source, manage it all together. And it's like, that was, that was a bridge too far for most people. Um, and, you know, I, I, I love the idea of, of, you know, an S bomb and, and, you know, all the, uh, trusted source and all that stuff. But man, that is, I've been in, I've been in enterprises where, you know, it was on somebody's laptop, and now it's in production. I'm, I'm going to unwind the stack a few levels here, and, and I apologize for, for this digression, but this is uh, informative, I think. Uh, something that we sort of touched on a little bit before is, obviously, I, I've been around the Kubernetes world since before it was officially announced. Right. And we were talking a little bit before about how it has changed, perceptions changed, or how what Google thought it would be versus what it actually was. When Google released Kubernetes, the assumption was that it would be used as a way to cut costs of compute. And so thank you to all of those people out there in the industry who are helping people cut the costs of compute, but we'll park that thought for now. The idea was you'd be able to do more with fewer machines. But it turned out that people couldn't deploy stuff reliably. There were no APIs for deploying things. They're like, we don't care. We'll just run one pod per node. We're fine with that. Just give us an API. Give us the automation and the reliability, the... If I ask Kubernetes to do a thing, it gets done. People did not have that. So we're a few years ahead. Like now we sort of get into the point where people start caring about whether or not they can pack more things onto fewer machines and so on. But at the beginning, they're like, well, we're just so far behind. We're deploying from source from people's laptops, like you say. And today, I think the same thing is true is the, the Gartner number says something like 95% of all outages are going to be caused by misconfigurations. It is very much a case that people are still able to do things accidentally. The systems aren't in the right place. Apparently, you can change a couple of lines in a file in a database and stop air traffic over the US for a week or something. All these kind of things. You really need to get the obvious guardrails in place. And then later on, we can start thinking about, oh, my God, what happens if some nation state attacks me or so on? But you're more likely to shoot yourself in the foot before that ever happens. Well, yeah. And, and that was, that was going to be my question, like... You know, you've been in the Kubernetes ecosystem for these years. Is security more about configuration, or are there actually vulnerabilities in the software? And it, it feels like it's configuration still. Most of the vulnerabilities in the software can be solved to some degree. Like if you're doing decent static code analysis, or if you're rewriting everything in Rust, like all the cool kids are doing, and so on. You're not going to be part of the problem or best case, you're going to be part of the problem at the same time as everybody else because they're going to find a heart bleed or whatever the right. JWT thing was this week. And so people aren't necessarily going to be able to target you in that fashion. Like a lot of these, like let's build a, a worm to break a 
particle accelerator or someone like there's so much effort goes into this that it's very unlikely to be targeted at your company unless of course they're looking to make some money off you in your hospital or they do ransomware attack right, or something right. like that yeah but yeah. Then, then it's more targeted and well it's opportunistic I mean, as well like these attackers are going and looking to say hey what can i find online the people who did the crypto jacking thing on tesla they weren't looking to break into tesla and if they knew what they'd broken into they probably would have done something more interesting than mined bitcoin <laughs> yes, there's some some criminal enterprises who are kicking them, you know, saying that was, you know, the golden goose and you brought back feathers. Right? I could have downloaded the the code for partial self-driving. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So the answer to to sort of step back up again is like, well, yes, we need to to manage the state of what's happening. We need to be able to have developers deploy stuff and know that they're not going to be hauled over the coals by the management because things go down. And then to some degree, they also need to have a security team who can go and, and verify that work. So mm-hmm. the, the things in Armo Build are effectively two pieces at the moment. You mentioned before that you donated your product to the CNCF and renamed it. We went the other way. So we had a thing called Cubescape in the way that when you're Grafana or MongoDB or whatever, you can have your open source thing and your hosted thing be called the same thing. So we had Cubescape and Cubescape Cloud. Cubescape Cloud was that thing that people were able to log into and see what's going on across their entire estate and get the view of things and schedule and run scans, all that kind of thing. So that's been renamed to Armo Platform. When you donate a project to the CNCF, for those who don't know, you can't use the trademark of it in the way that you used to because the CNCF own it and it has to be used vendor neutrally. So no one else can have a thing called Cubescape Cloud anymore, but neither can we. So we now have the the Cubescape tools, which are currently open source, that let you do scanning of Helm charts, repositories, registries, and so on, YAML files locally, run them in CI, run them on your laptop, run them in production, scan running clusters, whatever it is you want to do. That data can be sent off to a service. We have a hosted service at the moment, which is the Armo platform, like I mentioned. We're in the process also of open sourcing that. So we want that to be available to everybody. We want it to be sort of a reference implementation for security in the Kubernetes community so that you can run your own instance if you want, or you can come and give us some money and we'll host it for you. Have, have you seen good traction? So, so part of, part of the, the roadmap for CNCF projects is, is getting other, other folks contributing to, you know, to the, the project. You know, that's how you uh, graduate out of, out of incubation mm-hmm. um, or out of sandbox into incubation in, in our case. Um, do you have you know other folks are starting to like dig in and say hey you know i see you're doing this you know will, will, will you take our patches you know we're, we're kind of experiencing that in, in the, the kube and uh the open cost landscape mm-hmm. right now is is we're still early days in onboarding new maintainers but um i feel like you know your project is, is similar in and and size and, and scale and you know interest you're not going to make it a race um, now are you going to first to incubation guys <laughs> the other one to be it well well okay i mean uh, so we we came out in june mm-hmm. so where were you at you november december uh yeah so december was the the acceptance the and the, the announcements have yeah. actually been this january so we are in the yeah. process now of and i should point out this this isn't related to that we've been having a chat about yeah we should chat we're, we're both down in the wrong half of the world we should talk this wasn't timed around the cube <laughs> um the cubescape stuff in any sense no but now it's a race oh yeah <laughs> yeah the the thing here is now moving away so so the Armo community had set up a discord server and we've moved to the mm-hmm. kubernetes slack the cncf slack i should say and yep, we're there. there are synergies there there's obviously also a lot less um scantily clad bots and people who have uh, been hacked 
sending spam on the CNCF Slack, which is nice. We're sort of up-leveling that, the community. That is refreshing. That is refreshing. Yeah. It's a shame, I think, because it's not necessarily anybody's fault, but these people are Discord users on some other chat for some game, and they're being told they can get 100 coins if they paste some JavaScript in or something. But anyway. Oh, yeah. We are looking, obviously, to projects that we see synergies with. So we've done a bit of work with the Backstage team, for example. Yep. They're really taking off at the moment. People want to build a developer portal. They want to be able to integrate security into that. So we want to be able to Absolutely. have people see what's going on. Yep. That's yeah, we, we, we have the same conversations. They want to have their costs mm-hmm. built in. They want to you know get some predictions and, and cost management. Yeah. And, and so we're in that same place, it sounds like, that, that you are, is to say we have a dashboard and a, a system that people can use and that shows one aspect of their infrastructure. Some people will pick those things. Uh, this is let's uh, let's test our mutual history here. But this is sort of how things like SharePoint were able to win in the market. It's like you can have things that do wikis better, and you can have things that do uh, document hosting better, or so on. But ultimately, if you just have something that's in the middle that's good enough, it, it can sneak through, and and people will use that kind of thing. And so, yeah, uh, yeah we're we're getting pinged about you know, hey, uh, we want to you know, ha- can you make your stuff open telemetry compatible? We want to push it everywhere except for you know the ui you've provided <laughs> which is it's not a great ui i mean I, you know to be honest it's, it's not a great ui but uh, it's all about the api mm-hmm. and so you know uh, that's you know after this call i'm going to go back to working on api stuff uh and so that's a lot of our focus is getting mixed into other things as much as possible yeah and i think that's a, a, if anyone might ask why they should donate their they don't like the word donate. So why they should transfer their project to the CNCF and continue to maintain it going on. It is really those synergies. It is being able to say, hey, we're, we're here in this very neutral thing. We want to integrate with everything. We want to build these APIs. We want to, to see people. We want to get to a point where people are integrating the software into their Kubernetes distributions and they are contributing to it for that purpose. So we'll open source our UI stuff. People will be able to take it and, and run it themselves. Or they'll be able to say, hey, we're going to take the APIs and build it into our own management interface. And so we're looking for more contributors, but we've obviously got the people who say, hey, here's the thing I've used. I use this thing. I've got a little patch on it. Fantastic. We're also looking at how we can deepen those strategic relationships between other projects and vendors and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very familiar ground. Uh, You're already in my calendar. Um, well, yeah, so to speak. Um, so I, I guess the the monetization strategy for for Armo is is the SaaS, yeah, uh, and enterprise, or you know, yep, make a good thing and uh, charge people money for it. Yeah, yeah, that uh, very very similar uh, approach. So is is most of your competition, you know, people taking just grab bags of lots of other tools and, and putting them together, or is it you know the the legacy security vendors who? You know, now do Kubernetes? I mean, what's that? Yeah, like? it's, it's a combination of those. We did a survey last year, which we published the state of open source security tooling. Effectively, people in this space tend to use five or six open source projects and tie them together and not be very happy with the output. There are a lot of the existing vendors who have built some of those projects. There were startups in this space who were building security platforms out. Some of them got acquired by bigger vendors, and they're now the official upstream for the various commercial products, but we haven't seen them really build a community. Like we, We're putting this thing in the CNCF. Some of the others have said they will do that, but that has not yet happened. That is a, an area where we say, hey, we need to be part of the core of the stack that people are looking at. 
this is something that uh, we in, in my previous world working on the Istio project, like for, for reasons which we'll talk about once one of us has bought the other one a beer, we spent a long time not being part of the CNCF. And it, yeah, I, I worked at a K native company. You did. So I hired a Sebastian for me. But the, the challenge there was people could understand that when you spent half an hour explaining it to them, or maybe even five minutes explaining it to them. But it's just a shortcut. If you can say, hey, we are in the CNCF, then that solves you, saves you having to have that conversation with them. Yeah. It, it gets you instant credibility where, you know, they assume neutrality yes. and, you know, that you're striving towards the best interests of everyone involved, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone knows that, you know, yeah, there's a commercial entity or, you know, multiple ones associated with the project, but um, it's a common ground at least. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, once we can get out of Sandbox, we'll have, you know, proven that it's it's a, a level playing ground for everyone. Yeah, and the vendors, to the other part of your question, like the, the traditional security vendors and people who are sort of moving into cloud security, or even some of the bigger companies who have been around a few years now doing cloud security. Cloud is a thing. Kubernetes is another cloud that sits on top of your first cloud. And to say, hey, what's happening in my cluster? And only look at the, the VMs that are running your nodes, for example. You, you can't see that. You need to go that second level up. And so some people have made some steps into that but that again is is similar to the whole you can be everything to everyone or you can do one thing very well and there'll be some people who for whom kubernetes is a very small part of the thing that they do and they're willing to just take the whole the tool that's added on by their existing vendor but as more people end up underpinning everything they do with kubernetes that's where we think the space is yeah a lot of parallels there um Okay, well, uh, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I mean, you're a, a busy VP. It's a and, Monday. Uh, Come on, we don't do anything on Mondays. <laughs> the Americans are asleep. Well, uh, not only are Americans asleep, uh, tomorrow is is a U.S. holiday. So, um, well, I should say the the most of the Armo team are, are based in Israel, so it's actually their Tuesday today. It, it's just it's weird having the other end of the week. It's it's an wait, adjustment. What? <laughs> they start work on su- Sunday's a working day. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, of course, uh, not not literally Tuesday. You and I are both used to living in the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm used to being everyone's future, but not uh, Israel's future. <laughs> um, okay, so they probably won't be so, uh, taking the day off. So I guess you'll be getting back to work soon. Is, we, is there is it, work for me starts at eight p.m. Their working day starts at eight p.m. The the time I can spend talking to people. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um, well, was there anything that, uh, I mean, that, uh, you've got, you know, it's January, you just open sourced your, or not open source, but you contributed to the CNCF. What's, what's the year ahead? What, uh, what's the roadmap for, for Coopscape 2023? Well, like you said, getting people to integrate with it getting people to adopt it, though we've got a huge number of people who are using the software today, but we need to tell them that there's more things that they can do. We need to build more things. We need to build our, our strategy as to how we are going to work with the supply chain community and how we can take in that data as source and be able to, to track that as people care about it. And I say not just, I've done vulnerability scanning against my containers, but I can also show their, their SBOM data or I can, can check as it becomes a more important thing that people are asked to sign off for for compliance reasons. So we have... A, a strategy internally as to what we're going to build. But then the joy of open source is that we basically have to reserve a percentage of our engineering time to deal with what people want to build, what people come up with. 
the best scenario is that someone comes along with a giant patch and says, hey, I'm building this thing out for you. Here's some free code. And we need to integrate. Is there, is, is there friction with between you know the Armo platform and Coopscape where you know currently there are things in, in Armo that aren't in Coopscape that well, you know, someone could show up with a patch and, and you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the cloud-hosted part today is still closed source. It's a yeah. an unpinning, uh, it's an unpackaging some of the other services that it depends on. It uses a third-party authentication service, for example. So for us to open source it, we need to have a, a local alternative. And so there is a, a quarter or so of engineering work that we're doing to get it ready for people to use. But when that's done, the point of being an open source company should be that everything you, you can have open source is. And so we will be making that available. People today might say, hey, there is this, there's only this paid service that they can use if they want to do have the, the UI work we've done. We'll say, well, just, we appreciate that. Three months time, let's talk again. It'll be out there for you. So it's not so much that in terms of work that we're going to do. Like we, we may have a plan to build out a feature in future. Uh, if someone comes to us and like we, as all open source projects, would prefer people to come with a design document rather than code that they've already written. And But sometimes people are going to come along and say, hey, I, I've built this thing or I, I did this because it worked internally and, and we might like you to maintain it and, and we'll we'll see what happens. We'll we'll see as we move through the CNCF journey, we're going to see a lot more of that. Then we've had a lot of great mm-hmm. contributors to date, but we're going to expect uh, a lot more. And, and that's really what being a VP of open source means. It's enabling that and it's getting the community to a point where we can start seeing what comes. Sounds Sounds like you guys have a, a good strategy around that. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm going to try to get out of, of for for KubeCost and OpenCost this year is like a, a public facing. This is how we think about things and how what we're going to do, so you know people can hold us accountable. Should we start? Should we start <laughs> a podcast for companies called Cube Something? Uh, oh dear, no. Um, no, I, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> Let's not. Let's not. But um, so I assume you've got you know a, a steady dose of conferences and um, you know marketing events, podcasts. Uh, you've probably we're. I'm excited. Our, our marketing. Um, we have a marketing person starting. I think tomorrow. So we'll you know actually have a marketing schedule. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, the, the company I, has like, has been out doing marketing for 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 cubescape and for what is now the armor platform and we, we have a great team there uh, i've really like I say come on board with the experience in the kubernetes community it, it's an area like let's say it's almost nine years now it's over nine years since um i started working at google and that's effectively the entire life of the thing so i know where the bodies are buried and i know how these things work and it's fun keeping up with it as it changes as well it, it's fun seeing how things grow and evolve um conferences yeah the it's interesting to see how things get back together uh, whether or not my personal circumstances make it trivial to go to as many events this year as as i've done in the past uh, we shall see but uh, like i say if if you need someone to sit and talk into a microphone it's a, a gap in my life that i'm will talk all right all right um okay well uh with that um i think we can start wrapping most of the things up is there anything anything i didn't ask you about that you want to talk about do i get to do bureaucracy oh sure yeah you you can handle you can take a bureaucracy we can talk about you know uh all blacks versus wallabies or you know whatever 
I, I I haven't been able to get back into sport. It's it's really strange. Me neither. I, I don't understand. Like I'm out of my element in all Australian sports, so I, I don't even know if there's a Wallabies team. There are. You did that. you did well. That's that's good. Um, okay. Cricket would be my sport if I were into it, and I'm not going to have to explain that to you with baseball metaphors, am I? No, no, no. I I, I vaguely understand. I understand the sports. Like I, I've had I've had you know Aussies and and Kiwis explain to me how the games work, and I can watch them. And appreciate them, but you know that's about it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tune in uh, and, and you know I have yet to go to a, like a live sporting event in Australia, which is you know maddening to some of my Aussie friends. They're like, you know, you're missing out. That's what you know. That's what we're all about. Like, Did you watch okay. Ted Lasso? Yes. <laughs> okay. So I lived in Richmond. They filmed Ted Lasso oh, wow. at my house, yeah, yeah. basically. Not I, I don't live in that house, but you live like, in the pub. We we would the, the pub. It's it's not called what, whatever it's called in the show. It's it's called something different. And uh, I'd get my coffee. There's a little coffee guy. Unfortunately, I think he's had to close up shop. But uh, who, who was basically right over the road from the little door where where Ted Lasso lived and the the green out there. We would see them filming quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Richmond as a little township is it's right near the Twickenham Stadium. Richmond sort of probably I'd say it's more into rugby there's, there's no Richmond football club there's no okay. the, the thing so, that they have in the yeah. show is, is fake but when I moved to the UK like obviously Britain's soccer mad nation and whatever it's like well how do I get involved in this if, if I wanted I never really grew up with with soccer I, I don't care that much for for feet based sports in general but the <laughs> the thing is like you have this passion and you have this religious affiliation with a team how you get that is i'd say it's probably because your dad had the same thing if you grew up there it's like well what what were you indoctrinated in when you don't have that how are you supposed to pick which team to support yeah yeah i didn't i didn't indoctrinate like any of my children into you know any particular sports other than the the university of of texas you know being Mm -hmm. in austin you know we went to that kind of stuff but like professionally I, i don't really follow professional sports and like my oldest, he likes Jacksonville's team, and I was like, "You've I've never been to Jacksonville." <laughs> how how did he get that? How did he? Get I that don't know. I you know it's it's just you know some randomness, and and you know my my uh, my youngest is is very into uh, it's U.S. football right now, and so the, you know the finals, and he's been you know uh, something that Australians get to do is you know bootleg uh, U.S. broadcast of NFL games. Uh, he's been watching a lot of those games, and. Uh, you know, he's picked his teams, and I'm like, I don't know why you pick these teams. You know, it, it, it has no no bearing. You've never been to these towns. It's just you. I guess you feel compelled to pick a team. It's, you know, yeah. London has many, many professional football teams. Many, and yeah. as anyone who watches Ted Lasso will know, the whole league system and promotion, relegation, and so on. There are different levels that you can pick. So the, the first thing you might think is, well, who are the local team? There's no Richmond football team. Just over the river is Brentford, but that's in North London, and Richmond's in South London. And like, oh, we don't know about that. That's like it's, it's the whole divide thing. And then you say, well, who's who's the big team who are nearest me? And that would probably be Chelsea. I say, well, Chelsea win a lot and they're a big expensive team and they may or may not still be owned by the Russians. I'm not sure what the latest is there. But it's like, well, can you pick that team? Because, like, should you pick someone who's in the middle? Like, It's almost like you want to pick one team in one league who's a little bit of a scrappy team or so on and, and someone else, like, you could pick your Manchester Uniteds or so on. But, like, I've never been yeah. to Manchester. I've been, people who have never been to Manchester affiliate themselves with that team and it's hard to tell why. What's the right choice? I'd call my dad and ask him, but I think he'd know less about it than me. 
<laughs> yeah, I. That's how I am around here. I'm like, oh, you know, the Sydney Swans won, won something, and then my follow-up question is, what sport is that? <laughs> Did the so I, I have to assume that the Queen owned the Sydney Swans by law, which is, is like well, all the Swans belong to the Queen. Like, was there some process whereby they were all mm-hmm. transferred to the new monarch? Did anyone check on the Swans? Are they all doing okay? I don't know. He, he hasn't come lately. I think. Uh, uh, I mean. My understanding is Australia is likely to become a republic sooner than New Zealand. Yes. And, um, but I, I also, my understanding is, is Australia probably likes the monarchy more than New Zealand, but New Zealand, it's mm-hmm. tied up in like treaties with the, the Maori where, mm-hmm. you know, the Maori are resistant to becoming a republic because the treaties were with the monarchy, not with the, the New Zealand government. And so they're worried that, you know, they're worried that, you know, they'll try to go back on some of the treaties. I, I, this is my, you know, uninformed, you know, bare, barely topical. I, I understand you've lived in Australia for six years. Have you transitioned to getting your news from Australian news sources or do you still listen to uh, what you're familiar I, with? I, I, I definitely read uh, Australian news sources, but, you know, the Australian newscape is kind of uh, run by Rupert Murdoch. It is. You know, about 80%. So I, I kind of look to alternate sources a bit. Um, it's it's strange, I guess, the, the, the time zones. And again, moving to the UK and Canada for a couple of years before that, it was really hard to keep up with New Zealand cricket that would happen when you were asleep and so on. It's not worth staying up for it in the most part. But the same is true for, for news. And we were listening to New Zealand news while we were in the UK thinking about moving and getting ready to move and thinking oh it's so quaint over there it's like today we rescued a cat from a tree kind of news and all that <laughs> that is my local news but yeah. having come over here it's like I, I can't stomach it I can't stomach the local news the, the accents for starters let's, they, they all sound like they're Australian on the news what's up with that but the I, I don't know what it is it's this the the detachment, perhaps things not happening in the same time zone, the, the coverage, some of the coverage of, of world stuff is there, but there is sort of a, we're opted out, we care a lot more. There's, there's a lot more fishing in New Zealand per capita than the rest of the world. Fishing is very important to the local news. Not sure where I was going with that explicitly, but it's... Uh, <laughs> I was waiting it, for the, the punchline of, and... No, well, well to the issues you were saying, uh, when we got back here in, in September, uh, very early in September, and I think a week or so later, the Queen died. And so right, right. Uh, we'd been in the UK up to that point um, when the 70th anniversary celebrations were happening. And... That was a real shame. I'd say that um, I wouldn't consider ourselves to be a huge monarchist or anything, but Fern and I went to Prince William's wedding. We figured that's the thing to do. Got up at five o'clock and sat on the side of the road and watched the carriages and the pomp and ceremony and so on. And it's nice that that's there, and it's nice that that's there because of the nature of the individual who it was, the, the lady who had been the queen for that period of time, did such a good job. Like you say, the Australia will would never have made that change while she was still alive. It will remain to see oh, whether yeah. or not it will. there'll be movement behind it at the moment. But it's just strange that um, t- you seem like you may be a little bit more up to date with the New Zealand news than I am. It's, it's the, I, I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't managed to connect with it here. Well, you I know, I, I mean, as an American, it, it, you know, the whole uh, royalty thing is... You know, we're like fascinated at it, but it's 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 not much more than like reality TV. It's you know, who are these weird celebrities? And especially this like, week, part of me, uh, yeah, well, especially this week. But then part of me like also 
there's just this weird historical massive historical component to it right mm-hmm. i mean you know this is the you know the the british royal family were the power behind you know the country that was once you know the the preeminent empire of the world and so um that's interesting in its own aspects and then you know just uprooting and moving to another country that you know there's the queen on my money and you know it's (laughs) well there's also you know a kangaroo but that's a different story but you know there's there's all these like royalty and and other things and you know learning about the obscure history of you know the queen overruling the australian parliament and you know it's just like wait what wait till you get to the part where the prime minister just walks into the sea love that story (laughs) and then and then they name a swimming pool after him the harold holt memorial swimming pool is that's that is so awesome i still Um, find it weird that everything in melbourne is named after batman yeah well it's a uh it's it's he's undercover so poorly um but yeah it's uh it's 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 just a fun interesting thing but for some people it it is the real world Mm -hmm. um so uh yeah i I was just kind of fascinated to see like how things are going to play out um in this country uh your country and uh and everywhere else but uh, it it was doesn't really affect my day-to-day yeah watching like back to the why am I back in New Zealand thing, watching how New Zealand and to some degree Australia was largely isolated from the COVID outbreak for the first few months. It was oh, a wow. yeah. it was a thing. It obviously didn't last. Uh, we got here and had to be in quarantine for a week and, and all of that to be able to do that. Oh, like in September? Uh, not this year. When we first moved, came back here was... Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. November yeah, the year they- before. There's nothing anymore over here. No, well, again, we've all just sort of collectively decided to say... Uh, we're going to pretend to be okay with it, and behind the scenes, we're going to have certain levels of not being okay with it. But but here we are. Yes. But yes, it was it was made out to be the land of milk and honey for a while, but uh, right now it's sort of effectively the same as everyone else. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's still a fun place to visit. And you get uh, to go to the beach a lot more. I do, uh, and you do. So um, so uh, let's. Let's enjoy our summers, and uh, uh, while everyone else is enjoying their cold, and good on you at least for war. going back to the U.S. and having—I I presume you were there for Christmas. A, a summer Christmas is strange and weird, and I don't like it. it it's wrong. <laughs> it is strange and weird. Um, there's a, there's a lot more like family stress, like going back uh, for Christmas because you know there's all the. You know, oh, you have to see everybody and make sure you have presents and, you know, all that stress. So we, we did go back once in the U.S. summer and it was a lot more relaxing. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, coming, coming, you know, Christmas in, in the summer is, is something weird. Uh, I assume over New Zealand, you know, Santa comes up in a boat for the, the nippers. And, um, I can't think how it must be for the poor helpers who are asked to stand in for Santa at the shopping mall and so on for the the things they have to wear in the 27 of my uh, metric degree weather. Oh, oof. yes. <laughs> They're sweating. In That's like 400 room. Fahrenheit for, for all your American listeners. Exactly. Um, all right. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to uh, let you get back to work and I'm, uh, I'm going to try to squeeze in a few hours before I head to the beach myself. And uh, we'll we'll call it a day. That is very kind, but, Matt. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been great having you. If if anybody wants to follow up with you afterwards, uh, where 
where where should they find you and contact you? Uh, again, that's one of those complicated questions, and I I know you've got things to do, but the the answer last week would have been Twitter. It's very hard to say whether or not that's still the answer. I was able to tolerate everything that's happened so far, but now they've cut off third party API access, so I can't use Tweetbot anymore. So the uh, Tweetbot started working today. Is it come it back? Oh God! Oh no! You, you it started broke my heart. and then it stopped. So yeah. Uh, so I mean, I, I'm literally the same boat. I was I, I was Tweetbot insulated me from a lot of twitter exactly um you know it, uh, they're playing around with the algorithms they're you know pu- pushing stuff into your feed the ads all, all that fun stuff and then when they killed it last week i was like well i guess i'm done yep and you know and then i was over on on mastodon which i i, I need Tweetbot for mastodon right and <laughs> i've been <laughs> oh, i'm angry at like, them for not letting me onto their beta yeah, yeah, same. And and somebody posted, oh, you know, Tweetbot's working again. And then, so I went back over and it worked. And then, you know, I, I, I you know, wasted half an hour and then I went back to work. And then I was like, oh, I'll check back while I'm eating lunch. And it was down again. All right. Well, the, the long <laughs> so, answer then. Which makes me think, yeah, it, it, but that makes me think it's not, it's not malicious or not malicious, but it wasn't intentional. It's probably incompetence. I mean, it's, it's, they probably just broke it again. I'm, I'm not willing to bet, but by, by the time this episode is out, the answer will hopefully be clear. But I, I, at this point in time, I'm not willing to bet either way. Like I've heard inside talk yeah. about it being deliberate. I've, I could easily understand it to be accidental. Well, I mean, deliberate, I wouldn't have expected it to ever come back. Mm. Right. And that, 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 why is it back for an hour? Oh, that could have been accidental. They tried to break it, but the the people who were in charge of keeping it broken have left. Yes, yes. They're like, feature flag on, feature flag off. Yeah. Well, anyway, I I am Craig Box on Twitter. I'm Craig Box at mastodon.social. And you should definitely sign up to my newsletter at craigbox.substack.com. And we will have all of that in the show notes. And I appreciate you coming on the show. And we'll catch up with you again soon. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. So anyway, I mean, if, if you want a, here's a technical kind of interview show with someone like, like we used to do, then that's fine. If you want to do a two guys who live in the Southern Hemisphere, just talk crap for an hour, that's fine too. So, Well, I, I like the idea. So that this is, <laughs> Adam always used to have the start. So, so how are you? And I'm like, well, like, A, you can't do that every week. And B, I'm not prepared to answer that question. Of all the things that you could possibly ask someone, how are they or what are they doing? It's like, no, you have to have planned that. So the idea is basically if the cold open works, you keep it in. As long as you promise me you don't keep it in, if it's crap, then we can do what you like. So, so yeah, some of the questions I, I put are kind of uh, invitations to uh, tangent. I'm not here to do a Cote impression.